So I know uh, pews are a little bit uncomfortable. Morning. Pews can be a little bit uncomfortable, and sitting in them for a prolonged time isn't uh, particularly convivial to being comfortable. But by and large, I'm sure you'd all agree with me, life for us today is actually pretty comfortable. Life is, if you think about what other people in this world have to put up with. Life for us here in the West, here in 2019, here in Risca today, it is fairly comfortable. I wonder, for instance, most of us this morning, you know, you'll have got up, probably got some coffee or some tea or fruit tea or whatever, got dressed, got ready, come to church, came in, said hello to a few people, sat down, listened to the notices, sang the songs, thought, oh, I haven't sung that one for a while, wondered about the strange tune to the last one. And hopefully at the end of the service, you'll go home and you'll reflect on it and you'll have a bit of roast preacher for your dinner and you'll think, it wasn't bad. It was all right. It was comfortable. Um, that's, that's, the real, that's what I see. That's a photograph I've taken of you. That's what I see. Honestly, no. But th that's the thing, isn't it? That's the image we kind of get about church. That's certainly the image a lot of people outside of the church have about what happens in here. That it's, you know, it's a bit boring. It's a bit bland. It, it's kind of comfortable and life itself is comfortable i bet what i've just described to you is the church experience for hundreds if not thousands of people across the united kingdom this morning it is comfortable and i tell you this because i want to contrast this morning our church experience today in 2019 with the experience of christians back in the first century because believe me back then it wasn't exactly comfortable. So I want to enter into the world of the first century. And I want to look at a, an account from the book of Acts. So if you've got a Bible app, why don't you open that on your phone now? Or there's a Bible at the end of every pew. Get hold of that. Let's open up the book of Acts. If you're new to the Bible, the book of Acts, of course, comes right after the gospel stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's the record of what happens to the followers of Jesus right after he returns to heaven. This is the story of the emerging church. And it's a wild story. We're going to pick it up this morning in Acts chapter 7. Uh, most of the early Christians were living in Jerusalem at that time. They had an amazing sense of community as they followed the teachings of Jesus and basically did life together. But then it got ugly. One of the Christians, a guy named Stephen, was debating with the Jewish leaders about Jesus and about him being the Messiah. And the religious leaders got very angry with him, very upset about what he was saying. And we're going to pick up the story this morning. Mary Bartlett's going to come and read for us from Acts chapter 7 and verse 54. So if you want to turn there now or you can follow it on the screens... Mary's going to take us through that little section. Thanks, Mary.
The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. And he told them, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that he died. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Thanks very much, Mary. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be a Christian at that time? I think it would have been very, very different from what it's like to be a Christian today. Very, very different. It wouldn't have been unusual for you to see a friend, somebody perhaps that you were doing life with, brutally murdered. And then, of course, the population rises up against you and rises up against all the Christians that you know and all the Christians that you don't know as well who live in your community. You're forced to flee your home, your job, and even in some cases your family because everybody is out to kill you. Because you are a Christian. So their experience of following Jesus is radically different, isn't it, from yours and mine. Let's just be honest about that. Very, very different. We are comfortable. It feels safe, it feels quite normal, to come to church, to do what we do, to engage with the things that we do. But for the Christians of the first century, church was literally a life or death situation. So I want to talk a bit more about the persecution that broke out against the first Christians. I don't know how much of this you know, how much you've studied history, but the Bible isn't the only place where you read things like Mary's just read for us about what happened to some of the early Christians. This incident with Stephen, known as a martyrdom, where somebody dies for their faith, was not uncommon at all. Now this morning we're concluding our little series on villains. And you know over the weeks we've looked at different villains in the Bible. I like a good villain, me. And uh, we've considered different ones and we've tried to learn from them and why they were so villainous in their activities and what that says to us about how we follow Jesus better. So, this morning, 
I want to look at a, a bunch of villains known as the Roman emperors. Because the Roman emperors are key in us understanding how Christianity came to spread in the way that it did. They're the villains of the peace, though. The Romans, as you know from your school days, ruled over most of Europe, uh, most of northern Africa, and the Middle East. In other words, everywhere that Christianity actually ended up spreading during the first few centuries uh, after Jesus. Uh, let's just say this, not all Roman emperors were bad. Not all of them. Uh, most of them, but not all of them. Uh, not all of them hated Christians. But between Jesus' death in around about 30, 33 AD, and you go through to the 300s AD, the truth is most of the Roman emperors hated Christians and actively persecuted them. So what we see unfolding here in Acts chapter 7 with the martyrdom of Stephen continues and gains pace. If you're a Christian, you're a wanted man a wanted woman. You are on a hit list. They are out to get you. And not just to tell you to stop doing what you're doing. You're silly. No, they are wanting to kill you for daring to go against the Roman way of life. One of the worst emperors of the time was a guy named Nero. I didn't have a picture of him, so I used this one. Uh, how many of you have heard of Nero? Yeah, you've heard of Nero. Nero Nero's a, a popular kind of villain in a lot of films around the period that we're talking about. You see uh, different people have, have played him. You can Google him, YouTube him, and you'll see just how vile and nasty this guy was. He was a serious villain. When a fire destroyed much of Rome, he falsely accused the Christians of having started the fire. Why? Because that gave him a reason to be able to go after them all the more. And he did. Boy, did he go after them. Here's what a Roman historian, a guy named, uh, what was he called? I can't remember. Anyway, no, not Tacitus, no. Another guy, anyway. Recorded in the annals. This is what he says about Nero, okay? Nero falsely accused and executed with the most exquisite punishments those people called Christians. These early Christians were brutally executed and perishing they were additionally made into sports. They were killed by dogs by having the hides of beasts attached to them. Or they were nailed to crosses or set aflame. And when the daylight passed away, they were used as nighttime lamps. Now, we don't tend to talk about this element of Christian history. But this is what was happening. And if you're a Christian, you're a marked person. They're going to come after you because they want to light their streets at night. They think it's great fun and sport to put a hide of an animal on your back and get you running around an arena so that dogs, lions, tigers, can chase you and devour you. Can you imagine what it was like to be a first Christ century Christian living under Emperor Nero? I just want to get it out there. I'd be scared stiff. 
I want to be honest with you. I would be petrified. I can't imagine the fear that these people must have lived with. Another Roman emperor who persecuted Christians was a guy named Trajan. Trajan was emperor during the 100s AD. Interesting character. According to Roman history, thousands of Christians were killed every day at one point during Trajan's rule. A guy called Pliny, who was a governor in what's now northeast Turkey, he recorded a bit about what Trajan did. Check this out. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. Those who denied that they were or had been Christians, when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me, offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose, together with the statues of the gods. You imagine that. Pliny wrote about torturing Christians so that they would deny Jesus. The way out of the torture and eventual execution was that you had to pray to this image of Trajan. This is real history. I'm not making this up. You go away, you check this out for yourself. This is all there in material that's not even in the Bible. So you haven't got to rely on the Bible. What I'm describing to you is this stuff that's commonly regarded and accepted as true factual records about what happened if you were a Christian living in the first century. Can you imagine living through all of that? When the Roman emperors, the leaders of the government that rules over you, were trying to stamp out your faith, and the best way that they felt they could do that was kill you. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of those early Christians. Imagine the anger. Imagine the rage. Imagine the overwhelming sense of injustice you would have felt. Because I don't know about you, but when I see somebody persecuted, when I see the little man getting a drubbing, everything within me is like, isn't it? So if that was happening, I can imagine that Christians surely would have felt rage and anger against the machine, against the man. Let's take him out. Let's rise up against him. The amazing thing about all of this is that they didn't. That's the very thing they didn't do. Most of them didn't become embittered or hateful. How in the world did they do that? How did they keep themselves from hate and revenge? Indeed, it's fair to say they suffered with incredible dignity and grace. And the wonderful thing is that because of that, you and I are here today. Because they ended up transforming the world forever. So I think this is an incredibly important thing for us to consider. The unexpected response of those early Christians. And I want to unpack that a bit with you this morning. Because their response to suffering and persecution 
really did, quite literally, change everything. The first thing I think we need to note is this. I think the early Christians, this wasn't a surprise to them. I think for the early Christians, they actually expected to be treated like this. See, Jesus, you may remember, had actually promised them that this would happen. The Gospel of John, Jesus wanted to warn his disciples about how it would actually be. So, Jesus speaks to them. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. In other words, they hate me, they're going to hate you. They persecuted and killed me, they're going to do the same to you. Jesus was the suffering Messiah. So it makes sense, doesn't it, that his followers too would suffer. And we need to understand that the early Christians weren't in any way, shape or form surprised that persecution came. What an amazing thought. Perhaps in the same way, those of us who are followers of Jesus today shouldn't be that surprised when people have a dig at us, have a go. Maybe we shouldn't actually be that surprised that there is incredible mistreatment of Christians in other parts of the world, so much so that they are still martyred for their faith. Jesus suffered, Jesus was persecuted, and he warned his followers, it will happen to you. What makes us think we get an opt-out? We shouldn't be surprised, should we? If people have a go at us? Well, because they do, don't they? Many of us sat here this morning, myself included, have had people say all kinds of, well, quite nasty things, actually, about having a faith or going to church. And not just when you're a little one, but as adults. Thankfully, of course, we don't live in a society where being a Christian is physically dangerous. Here in the UK, we have something called religious freedom. So you probably won't be fed to a lion on your way to, to Tesco's this afternoon, but um, that's a nice thing to know. But we're no strangers to suffering. We're no strangers to trouble. And as I said, many of our fellow Christians in other parts of the world definitely aren't. But it's really important that we get a handle on this. Jesus promised his followers. That's the way it's going to be. Following Jesus doesn't mean that difficulty and suffering will somehow evaporate from our lives. And indeed, it's true to say, isn't it, as somebody who's attempting to follow Jesus day by day, you can still expect to be mocked, to be ridiculed for choosing to follow God's guidelines for things. You will be very different from some of your peers. You'll stand out, and that isn't always very much fun. And as followers of Jesus, therefore, we should expect to experience some trouble and even suffering. And plus, you know, 
faith doesn't give us a get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to other kinds of suffering and trouble either, does it? You, you don't become a Christian and kind of escape, escape all the kind of suffering and torment and stuff that goes on in the world that other people have to put up with. Being a Christian doesn't exempt any of us from things like the pain of losing a family member. It's overwhelming. Sometimes in the midst of suffering and trouble like that, we do cry out, where's God? Where is God protecting us from all of this? But it's important to remember God never promised us a life free of trouble or suffering. Indeed, Jesus said, you should expect it. For some of us here this morning, it's about the pain of rejection. When you choose to follow Jesus, there are relationships, aren't there, that change in your life? Many of you will have known this. Jared, I'm sure you've experienced it. Others of us. You know, you, you come to know Jesus and, and some of your friendships immediately start to change. Friends who don't want anything to do with Jesus pull back from you. Until you find out who your real mates are. You may even choose to walk away from some friendship groups that you have because they're running as fast as they can away from God. And it can really hurt. Sometimes following Jesus can be terribly, terribly lonely. That's the reality. But we should expect that. It's not unusual. Trouble and suffering, we're not exempt from it. Jesus experienced it, his early followers experienced it, and we'll experience it too. So here's the question. How did Christianity survive if everybody was out, hell-bent, on destroying it? How did it survive all of that? You have the most powerful empire in the world against Christianity. The Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem are against Christianity as well. There's only a few hundred, maybe a couple of thousand Christians to begin with. There is this persecution going on. It is gaining momentum. There is increasing violence attributed to it. There is torture. There is death. Why would anybody choose to become a Christian amidst all of that? Well, listen to this. Not only did the Christians survive, not only did faith survive, it thrived. It absolutely exploded. As you look through history, within 250 years, the majority of people in the Roman Empire called themselves Christians. By the mid-300s AD, Christianity was legalized and then made, listen to this, the official religion of the Roman Empire. Isn't that God going... I love it. How? How does that happen? It doesn't make sense. Or does it? Christianity is all about Jesus. You do know that, don't you? I know you can love church, and you can love religion, and all that's attributed with that, and part of that. But at the end of the day, boil it down, it's all about Jesus. God's Son sacrificing himself 
for us. That's what it's all about. When you boil it all down, you can be a Baptist, you can even be a Methodist. It doesn't matter what denomination you are. When you boil it down, it's all about Jesus and what he has done for us. He willingly suffered and died to open a way back for us to God. We deserved for God, who is a holy God, to say to us, get out of my sight. Naff off, I've had it with you. And yet God graciously in his son Jesus says, do you know what, I'm going to deal with this problem. So we deserve to be punished. We deserve the wrath of God. Jesus stands in our place. He is our substitute. Takes all of that upon himself. And so through faith in Jesus and in what he's done, we are connected with God. Wow. So it's all about Jesus. It's not about symbolism. It's not about nice pieces of furniture. It's not about fancy buildings. It's all about Jesus. That's the heart of the gospel message. And that message was, back in first century Rome, and still today in 21st century Risca, the most powerful thing you can imagine. To the Romans... Well, they, they were in an interesting situation. To the Romans, you see, they had lots of gods. And the thing is, with their gods, their gods were always angry. And they were always trying to appease them. And Neptune and Jupiter and the others were upset about things. And so they were constantly having to sacrifice and bring offerings and do all these lovely things. Otherwise, crops would fail. And if crops failed, well, the gods were angry. If there was a lack of peace somewhere in the Roman Empire, all oh, the gods must be angry. If your health was bad, gods must be angry with you. Find out which one it is and appease them. It's a constant struggle in first century Rome to keep the gods happy. Now, it's funny, a lot of people think that that's the Christian god today. And they think, I'm not well, God must be unhappy with me. I didn't get that promotion, God must be punishing me. And we carry this kind of momentum through with us where we think that's the way God works. Now, hear, hear this, the, the totally radical thing about Christianity is, the revolutionary thing about Christianity is that this is the point, God's not angry. God's not angry. It's all been sorted on a cross, on a hill far away. Jesus Christ took everything pertinent to reconciling you and me with God. And the fact is, the revolutionary thing is this. He loves you. And he sacrificed his son because he loves you. And every person on the planet Earth can know a life-changing relationship with him. That was an incredibly compelling message in first century Rome. Because all people were doing was going around trying to appease the gods, trying to appease the gods. Oh, who have we upset? How can we, what, what gift do we need to give the gods? If I sacrifice more, if I offer more, they'll be happy with me. And yet the Christians were talking about a God of love, of acceptance. The early church was built on that message and importantly, living out that sacrificial love as a community of faith demonstrated first in Jesus was the thing 
that people couldn't get. Such sacrificial love was the defining mark of following Jesus. And you look at what Christians have continued to do down through the centuries. Christians are involved in all sorts of things. Do you know if Christians pulled out of NGO organizations all over the world, most of them would collapse. Because if you're looking at food programs, health programs, uh, water programs, all sorts of programs all over the world, run by NGOs, they're not Christian organizations necessarily, but there's so many Christians involved in that work because Christians are compelled, aren't they, to serve. Why? Because we have received so much. We want to serve others. We want to love other people. We give ourselves away. We love people. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And so the way that the early Christians willingly suffered, the way they continued to love and serve in the midst of persecution, eventually won people over. They just couldn't understand love and strength of that magnitude. The early Christians, persecuted, downtrodden, despised, detested, loathed, scorned, berated as they were, they were the ones, read through history, who rescued abandoned babies in Ephesus. They were the ones who stayed and cared cared for plague victims in Antioch when everybody else fled. And again and again and again, that's the history of Christianity. And the Romans couldn't help but ask, where do you get love like that? And the answer comes from Jesus. Comes from Jesus. Christianity couldn't be stopped because the message and the community were and are so incredibly powerful. One of Jesus' disciples, a guy named Peter, summed up the approach of the early Christians this way. He said in 2 Peter chapter 3, Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it's better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Peter and the early Christians understood that suffering was that suffering for Jesus was an honor. And I think the key there is this. They understood that suffering was their greatest opportunity to share Jesus. You have a powerful voice when you're suffering. Some of the most wonderful Christians that I've had the privilege of reading books by or hearing speak on a stage, or even, dare I say it, visit in a home, have often been people who have suffered for their faith. Or suffered in life, and yet through their suffering, they have spoken of Christ. 
Johnny Erickson Tada. How many of you have heard of Johnny? If you've never, ever come across Johnny, Google her, get hold of the book about her story. Girl dives into water, breaks her neck, paraplegic. A girl who has followed Christ all her life. An amazing story. And again and again, we meet people who suffer incredibly physically. And yet their testimony of Christ is incredible. Because in suffering, they have the opportunity to share Christ. And you know, we have a powerful voice when we're suffering too. When we are being goaded by people in the workplace. When you've now given up saying on a Monday when they ask you what you did at the weekend, or oh, I went to church and stuff, because you're just fed up of what they have to say to you, calling you Holy Joe or whatever. And yet the truth is, we have the most powerful voice when we're suffering. People are watching us. They're goading us to get a response. Every time Christians experienced trouble and suffering, certainly in the first century, it was like they were center stage. They had a captive audience. Don't you find that in your workplace? Don't you find that in your family? Very often they goad you. Come on. listening. What are you going to say? What are you going to say? I imagine that many, many people came to faith in Jesus as they watched the followers of Jesus suffer with such dignity and love. Because Christianity is built on sacrificial love. So let's bring these concepts closer to home as we finish. Let's talk about our own lives today in 2019. As I said a moment ago, we live in the UK, where thankfully, as I said, we experience freedom of religion. You're not anytime soon going to be fed to a lion or set ablaze to light, uh, light the streets of Risca. So, so how, how does all of this relate to you? You might say, well, you know, that was all back then, Mark. It doesn't relate to me today. But like the early Christians, trouble and suffering are our stage. I believe that trouble and suffering are still our greatest opportunities to share the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Many of us sat in this room, came to faith in Christ because of a personal tragedy in our lives, because of a circumstance that was difficult to handle, because of an emotional problem, mental health problem, a physical problem, a relationship breakdown. Many, many people find Christ when they are at their most vulnerable in life. When they are suffering. How we react is the key, isn't it? How we react when people treat us badly. When people have a dig at us. When people aren't goading us. Your friends know you're a Christian. Believe me, they're watching you. And as Peter said, we need to always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. You may not lose all your friends because you're a Christian, but there will be people in your life who mistreat you. And we need to be honest about that. Who will say some terrible things about you and maybe even betray you. You remember the tension that the early Christians must have felt. They weren't superhumans. They experienced all the same emotions we do. But when they were persecuted... 
Do you know what? I think they did feel anger and they wanted to take revenge, but they didn't. They chose forgiveness because that's what Jesus taught them. And they were willing to exercise sacrificial love to those who persecute them. I really hope and pray that we as a fellowship of God's people here at Moriah can learn from the experience of those first Christians. Because very often when it comes to sharing our faith, we are worried about suffering for it. We would rather be comfortable. We would rather settle for a quiet life and not encourage people to goad us because it makes us feel uncomfortable. And so the challenge here this morning as we look at these villains of the emperors is to understand that the response of those first Christians was to follow Jesus and his example. As I said earlier, the early Christians didn't just survive persecution, they thrived in it. Because the church, when it focuses on sacrificial love, can't be stopped. So if they have a go at you in work, choose deliberately, consciously, to react as Jesus would. Not to ram religion down their throats, not to be a Bible basher. You had that one thrown at you? to love them, to be sincere, to give an answer for the hope that is within you. Don't be embarrassed about it. Don't be ashamed about it. Be confident in the power of the gospel to still change lives. Because I ask you this question, what would happen in our schools? What would happen in our college and our universities? What would happen in our families? What would happen in our workplaces? What would happen in this town of Risca if that's the way we responded? It's one of the reasons Pastor Tim and I really want to encourage you to be part of this new faith-sharing course that's starting this Wednesday. As you'll have seen in the newsletter... The Connect Groups is being suspended for six weeks. We're going to be meeting together three weeks before half-term and three weeks after half-term. Because we have confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ to change people's lives. Does that mean that people may mock you? Yeah, it does. Does that might mean that people might have a go at you? Yes, it does. But should we expect any different? 